Well, this morning I want us to continue with our study of Christ of the book. Uh, we have 1 Timothy to go, then we're going to do Titus next week, then 2 Timothy, then we're going to conclude with the book of Revelation. We started, I don't know, a year ago, maybe more, with our study of Christ of the book. In the volume of the book, it's written of me, and we started in Genesis, and we've come all the way through. In Genesis, he's creator. In Exodus, he's deliverer. Leviticus, he's lawgiver. And all the way through the scripture, we have looked for the Lord Jesus. He is the living word. And he tells us in the volume of the book, it's written of me. And so we've gone searching for the Lord Jesus in every book of the Bible. And folks, he absolutely is there. And today, as we look at 1 Timothy, he is the one mediator. Uh, 1 Timothy was, was written uh, right after Paul is released from prison. Remember, he's in Roman prison, and he, there he writes to the church in Ephesus, he writes to the church in Philippi, he writes to the church in Colossae, and he writes to his friend Philemon. And when he writes to Philemon, he's hoping to be released. Well, he writes next to young Timothy, who is the pastor there in the church in Ephesus. And by the time he writes, he has been released from Roman prison. Uh, his release is going to be short-lived, uh, unfortunately, however. Of course, God's timing is perfect. Uh, he's going to write... To first Timothy, or going to write to Timothy the first time, then he's going to write to, to Titus. The next time he writes, he's going to be writing to Timothy again. This time he is in prison waiting his execution. Uh, when he writes to, to Timothy, the, the, the gist, the important aspect of his writing to Timothy has to do uh, with doctrine, uh, with doctrine and selecting qualified men to step into that leadership role. He talks to Timothy about the importance of Bible doctrine and ordaining the right men to serve uh, there in the church. When he writes to Titus, it's all about church discipline and also finding those right men to step in to that leadership role. I think it's interesting, when he writes to Timothy, he tells Timothy do not let the church in Corinth frighten you. Don't let the church in Corinth scare you. When he, write, or when he writes to the church in Corinth, he tells them, do not let, uh, he, he says, Timothy, don't, don't scare Timothy. Whatever you do, don't scare Timothy. When he writes to them concerning Titus, he says, don't let Titus scare you. So kind of give you an idea of the difference in those two men. He says, church in Corinth, don't scare Timothy. When he writes to Corinth about Titus, uh, don't let Titus scare you. So it kind of gives you an idea of these two men. And so as we go through this study, I want us to kind of keep an, uh, that in the back of our mind, the kind of, of man each one of these fellows was uh, and, and what uh, their type of ministry. When what Paul was communicating to Timothy, uh, to this young protege, uh, were truths that every pastor needs, truths that 
every leadership in the church needs to understand. Matter of fact, there are truths that the pastor needs to know, and there are truths that the church should accept or expect the pastor to know. And it's a great guideline for how the church should operate. These truths are so important as you go through this letter to Timothy. He can, again, keep in mind, he's pastoring the church in Ephesus. These six, cha- these six chapters contain important instruction into church guidelines, church organization, church oversight, selecting qualified men to step into that position. He encourages Timothy to exercise those spiritual gifts that God has given him. Uh, Timothy's pretty meek. He's pretty mild. But he encourages him by saying, look, God's giving you, he's equipped you to pastor this church. And he encourages him that manner. One of the main things that he talks to Timothy about is guarding against false doctrine. And he promotes sound doctrine. Uh, Fourth thing that through the book of Timothy, there is a call to godliness, both in Timothy and in the congregation. Uh, The key verse, as we get into this, is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. I think this summarizes all that God wanted uh, Timothy and that church in Ephesus to understand as he was writing through the Apostle Paul to instruct them. Paul writes to him, 1 Timothy 3.15, But if I tarry long, that you may know how you ought to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the, pil- <clears throat> Excuse me, the pillar and ground of the truth. So that's what this is all about. He's writing this so you know how you should obey yourself in the church of God. So you read something like this, you think, boy, I need to digest this. I need to understand this. I need to read this so, and take this as instruction to St. Louis Bible Fellowship, how your pastor should conduct himself, how the congregation should conduct itself. In Christ of the book, as we go through this, I've already said that he is the one mediator. But there are several that you could have chosen. In 1 Timothy 1.1, we find out that he is our Savior. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is another one, which is our hope. So in the first verse, we find that that Christ is our salvation, He is our Savior, we find out He is our hope. We could have chosen either one of those because certainly He is both of those, our Savior. Folks, we need to realize that heaven is our home. As we talked about when we went through the book of Philippians, that uh, uh, that's where our citizenship is. That's where we are presently seated in Christ, in the heavenlies. We are citizens of heaven. He is our Savior. We're part of the body of Christ. Eternal life is ours. That's where we're going to live for all eternity, understanding that He is our Savior. 
But you know what's interesting about that? Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. He's not just our Savior. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm about to tell you. Don't leave here saying that preacher is preaching false doctrine. Because this, I'm just quoting you what the Bible says. Christ Jesus is the Savior. And I hope and pray this morning that he is your personal Savior. That by faith you have trusted Christ. That heaven is going to be your future home. That you and I are going to be able to spend all eternity together in heaven. But 1 Timothy 4.10 says... For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is our Savior, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. What this verse tells us is that God offers salvation to all men. There's not just an elect few. There's not just a, a few that God says, yeah, I'm going to save this one. <laughs> I'm not going to save this. I'm going to save this one. He is the Savior of all men. He offers salvation to all men. Unfortunately, unfortunately, not all men are going to come to Christ and by faith trust in His death, burial, and resurrection. How sad is that when you stop and think about it? That hell is going to be occupied by people whose sins were paid for. Did you hear me? Whose sins were paid for. Christ paid for the sins of the world on Calvary's cross, but yet because they rejected Christ, God didn't reject anybody that's in hell. If a man or a woman is in hell, it's because they rejected Christ. He is the Savior of all men. When he died on Calvary's cross, when his blood was shed, it was shed for all mankind. So that they could enter into that perfect relationship with God the Father. He is the Savior of all men especially those that believe. I've always found that verse interesting. He is the Savior of all men, especially those of you who are saved. Boy, isn't he? What a joy. What a wonderful life, having that assurance that heaven is my home, that I have a Savior, that my sin debt has been paid, that I have been made a new creation, that I'm no longer kin to the old man, I'm no longer kin to Adam, I am kin to the new man, the last Adam, Christ Jesus, I am in Him, that He is my Savior. Timothy tells us, as a matter of fact, Titus, when we get there next week, he tells us the same thing. He ties them together. He's your Savior, He's your hope what that verse says and he is our hope by the way folks I got news for you I hope this morning I hope this morning as we gather here and as we realize the world is coming undone at the seams as we gather here and we realize that the world is crashing around us that chaos reigns 
that there is not a political party that's going to come to your rescue. There is, there is no man that's our hope. Our hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one we trust. He is the one that we take a stand for. We take a stand on His Word. We are for His Word. I am not for the Republican platform. I am certainly not for the Democrat platform. But neither one of them are going to save you. Neither one of them are going to save this nation. Who our hope is, is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what His Word says. For He is our hope. Look at 1 Timothy 2. There's another one we could have chosen. 1 Timothy 2, verse 6. Who gave himself a ransom for all, there you go again, to be testified in due time. He didn't give himself a ransom for just the elect. Of course, when you do a study of election, you realize that it's the elect. God elected to work through a nation, Israel. Then God elects to work through a body, the body of Christ. And whosoever believes is placed into that body and sealed into the day of redemption. That election is all about service. It's not about salvation. God offers salvation to all men. Whosoever will, let him come. And by God's grace and his mercy, man finds forgiveness. So he is our ransom. A ransom, I looked it up. A ran ransom is a consideration paid or demanded for the release of someone from captivity. And boy, were we released from the captivity of sin and death. Amen? He paid that ransom. He paid that debt. You know, he's our ransom. He is our Savior. He is our hope. But you know what I found in all the years of my ministry, convincing someone that they need a Savior is easier than convincing someone they're lost, especially in today's society. With this I'm okay, you're okay attitude. Convincing someone that they're lost, that they need a Savior, that's the most difficult part of the job. And that's why I can't do it. It has to be God's Word that brings that conviction that moves on their heart. It's not based on what I say. It's based on what God's Word says. I'll never forget the time uh, we went to New Orleans as a church youth group, and we were going up and down Bourbon Street, passing out tracts and, and witnessing to people and and we, there are a lot of people on Bourbon Street that need to witnessing to, let me tell you. And as we were going up and down Bourbon Street, I, there was a, a, a fellow that was walking by, and I, and I handed him a track, and, and I said, uh, uh, would you like to be saved? And he was about my age, maybe a little older, and he just said, from what? And he really was clueless. I mean, he really didn't know what I was, un, what I was talking about, at least seemed that way. And I started explaining to him that Christ died for his sins, but he said, I'm not a sinner. Well, yeah, you are. And 
trying to explain just that basic truth was very difficult to someone who had no background. As far as he was concerned, he, he was fine. He didn't need a Savior. And to emphasize that, he literally ate the track that I gave him. I, I, to this day, I still don't know why he did that. I'm still not sure which drug he was on, but he had to have been on one. But see, convincing someone that they are lost and in need of a Savior is not something I can do, except when it comes to sharing God's Word and making sure they understand that God's Word says, for there are none righteous, no, not one. For we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's what God's Word tells us. So that's where we have to start. But the one that we've chosen that I believe that First Timothy teaches us that the Savior, the hope, the ransom is all brought into the one is the fact that he is one mediator. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. Let's start with verse 4. Who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. That's God's will. Somebody says, well, that Greek word there is really not the same as, as will. It means God desires or He wishes. Okay. God wishes all men to be saved. Just the fact that He, and I believe it is will. I, I, I think that it should be translated will. Who, God will have all men to be saved. That there tells me that he didn't select some and reject others. It is God's desire that all men be saved. That's what his word says. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Not just a select few, but he is that one mediator. God calls us to share that one mediator with a lost world. God's word's pretty plain. There's one mediator. How many does one mean? Does it mean two? Does it mean Christ plus his mother? Does it mean Christ plus some of the saints? Does it mean, or just Christ? There is one mediator between God and man. No one else is capable of representing you before God, the Father. Only God, the Son. There is only one mediator. How, how more plain can it be that there's only one mediator? So if there are a group, if there's an individual, if people are claiming to be Christian and they're telling you that there's more than one mediator, whether it be Mary, whether it be the saints, whether it be regardless of who they're telling you is a mediator, and, and well, you, you better not try to go through the Lord Jesus because you crucified him, he's mad at you, you better use his mother. Well, his mother's mad at you, too, because you crucified her son. You better use her mother. And that's, that's basically the way that it goes. 
I mean, that's the way it's, it's taught in some circles. But that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says there is one mediator. So if someone is telling you different, they are either, well, no, they're not either or. They are lying to you. They are deceiving you. And then your question should be, why? Why are they lying? Why are they deceiving? Who is the father of lies? Satan is. Do you see the danger? When people try to tell you there is there's more than one mediator. It's not just Jesus. There's, there are other mediators. Who in the world would have concocted, concocted a story like that? Folks, there's only one way. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There is only one person who will stand before God the Father and represent you, mediate, be the go-between, and say, Father, they belong to me. He is mine. He is part of my body. I paid the debt he owed. There is only forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. No one else is capable of representing that. 1 Timothy 1. Look at verse 3. Paul gets into some serious doctrinal truth that we need to understand, church. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus, when I went to Macedonia, thou might charge some that they teach no other doctrine. No other doctrine. The doctrine that they were teaching is the doctrine that they had learned from him concerning rightly dividing the word of truth. What they had learned was that mystery, that special revelation that had been given to Paul concerning the church, the body of Christ. It was the gospel of the grace of God, not the kingdom gospel. It was not what the twelve had been teaching. It was what that special revelation that was given to Paul concerning the body of Christ, the mystery that's so important. When you go teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith so do. Don't get bogged down in all the endless genealogy and the, the, the things that you can't really use scriptural basis to prove. Of course, the, the Jews were notorious for the genealogies and which tribes and where, how they, they, they fit in and all. And it, it just led to confusion. And Paul is telling Timothy, don't get involved. Teach sound doctrine. Look at verse 6. For which some, having swerved, having turned aside unto vain jangling. I like that word jangling. Vain jangling. Basically just talking idly in discord. Vain jangling. They, they, they just don't, they make no sense. They're just rambling on and rambling on and rambling on. It's just, they just talk because they love to hear themselves talk. Sort of what Paul tells Titus, almost the same thing. Look at Titus 
Look at Titus 1, verse 10. We'll start with verse 9. Holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Gainsayers, that's the opposition. Those people that were trying to thwart the purposes of God. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision. Kind of gives you an idea of what Paul and Titus were up against. Whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. Sounds like some TV preachers I've listened to lately. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said the Christians are always liars, evil beasts, and slow bellies. If this witness is true, wherefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. Oh, it's so important that we understand that special revelation that was given to Paul concerning you that contains our marching orders, how we are to conduct ourselves, understanding that we're no longer under the law, we're under grace, understanding that that we are dead to sin because of who we are in Christ, that we identify with Him, identifying all that He accomplished on our behalf on Calvary's cross. Boy, how important that is. We avoid that vain jangling. Verse 12, I think is one of the most important scriptures for us to understand when it comes to understanding and knowing or rightly dividing the word of truth. Verses 12 through 17. And I thank Jesus Christ, our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. What a testimony. Who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. By the way, I don't care. I mean, I do care what you've done, but it's, regardless of what you've done, you haven't murdered anybody, I don't think. The, the things that Paul lists here, if he can be saved, you know what that means, says for you? You can be saved. Unless, well, if, regardless of what you've done, you can be saved by faith and trusting Christ Jesus. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. And this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I am foremost. Howbeit, for this cause... I obtain mercy that in me first. Now, what's interesting about that word protos? Protos can either mean chiefly or foremost, or it can mean first in number, first in order. And to make sure that we understand and don't miss it, it's used in both fashions in these two verses. It's used as foremost or as chief, 
protos, but it's also used first in order, which is very significant as we're studying God's Word and we desire to do it rightly divided. To save sinners of whom I am chief foremost, based on his past and the things that he did to those kingdom believers, those who were followers of Christ, followers of the way. Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering. You mean to tell me that Paul was the first person that Christ was long suffering toward? No. What Paul's talking about here is the beginning of the church, the body of Christ. That it was in Acts chapter 9 on the way on the road to Damascus, away from Israel, away from the twelve, on his way to persecute those of the way, that God in his mercy and his grace saves the chief of sinners by grace, not based on a covenant promise, not based on his relationship with Israel, not based on something that the twelve apostles had said. By grace, that's what he says, that in me first, in order, Jesus Christ might show forth all, all long suffering. And you say, well, are you sure it's not foremost there? Well, the next part of that pretty much proves that it has to do with a pattern. It has to do, he showed long suffering in me first as a pattern. So is that pattern to be saved, you have to be on your way to Damascus, that you have to be blinded, that you have to hear a voice, because I don't think anybody here got saved that way. What it's talking about is by God's grace and mercy as a pattern. He showed Paul was the first member of the church, the body of Christ, didn't start in Acts chapter 2. That had everything to do with Israel. It had everything, the day of Pentecost, had everything to do with the kingdom being offered to the nation of Israel. Had nothing to do with that mystery. Had everything to do with God's prophetic program concerning Israel and things that the prophets had talked about was going to happen. Even Peter on the day of Pentecost said, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. All had to do with the kingdom program. Paul was still breathing out threatenings and slaughter. But on the road to Damascus, when the nation of Israel willfully, their spiritual leadership willfully rejected Christ. They rejected the kingdom. They rejected Christ. They rejected the Holy Spirit in the stoning of Stephen. I think they rejected God the Father with the beheading of John the Baptist. They had rejected Christ Jesus when they crucified him. And with stoning of Stephen, a man full of the Holy Spirit, to look upon him was to look upon an angel. The evidence was there, both with John the Baptist, with Christ Jesus certainly, and with Stephen. One, they demanded it. One, they allowed it. Two, they demanded it. And three, they committed it. 
the very next chapter we're introduced after Acts 7, the very next chapter we're introduced to this Saul of Tarsus who was causing havoc with those who are following Christ and believing him and, and longing for the kingdom to be established. The very next chapter, we find this chief of sinners on the road to Damascus, and he, by, by God's grace and mercy, is saved as a pattern to all those who should follow after. Father, folks, I can't begin to tell you how important it is to understand that verse. Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Why is that important? It's important because you need to know which gospel to be preaching. There's only one saving gospel today. That's the gospel of the grace of God. That's the gospel that Christ died for your sins, was buried, and rose again. And it is absolutely imperative that you believe that gospel. Verse 17, now unto the king, eternally mortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. When he's relating this testimony, he just breaks down in a moment of worship and praise as he talks about all that God has done for him. 1 Timothy 2 is all about public worship. 1 Timothy 3 is all about the qualifications for bishops and deacons and charging the people of that church in Ephesus how they are to operate, how they are to serve, how they are to organize. Chapter 4, what an important verse, especially in today's times, folks. This verse is so important that we understand the days in which we live because I believe we're in these days. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit speaks expressly. When the Spirit speaks expressly, what should we do? Listen. We should pay attention. That's important. Now the Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith. The faith. It's not saying people lose their salvation. I think basically reading this, they never had it to begin with. It's the faith. What, what does God's Word teach? What does God's Word stand on? And there are churches that are scattered from, from the Atlantic to the Pacific that are meeting today, and they are preaching a false gospel. They are preaching things that are not scriptural. Because what this verse says, latter times, and we're in the latter times, latter times, shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. That is exactly what's going on. You want to know why? This country and this world is in the chaotic state that it's in. It's because we've gotten away from this. And what so many churches, so many groups have embraced is, it, is doctrines of devils. They've listened to seducing spirits. 
And it is gone, going on in church after church. They talk about ascended masters. It talks about new age. Uh, talks about different issues and embracing different issues that are so ungodly. It's heartbreaking when you stop and think of how many churches are embracing the woke agenda, the churches that are embracing the homosexual agenda, trying to make it okay with God, and I'm here to tell you it's not. It's not okay with God. It is sinful. They are listening to seducing spirits. There's two scriptures. We, won't, we are going to go into when we get to 2 Timothy. We're going to talk a bit more about this. But there are two scriptures that I want you to keep in mind. And be praying for me as I prepare to teach 2 Timothy. And I'm going to bring this into it. But Matthew 24 and Luke 17 both talks about, as in the days of Noah, so shall it be the coming of the Son of God, or the Son of Man. As in the days of Noah. But it, on Luke 17, it's also in the days of Lot. And it specifically talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. What was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah? I don't have to answer. That's kind of a rhetorical question, right? Folks, we're there. When the homosexual agenda, this is... It, you're not going to see a pride flag flown anywhere here. I guarantee you. The, but the homosexual agenda is being pushed and being shoved, and being crammed, and being insisted upon in such a way that it makes it difficult for people to stand against it, but we've got to. We've got to. Why you don't love. Yeah, it's because I love. Because I love God and I love them and I want them to understand the truth of God's Word, it's because I do love them, I'm going to tell them the truth. I'm not going to lie to them. I'm going to tell them what God's Word says. But you need to understand that in today's world, the truth is bitter. In today's world, the truth is bitter. They don't want to taste it. They don't want to accept it. And you are an enemy for having the audacity to take a stand and believe this. If we got down to just Faye and I in this church because of the stand on his word, well, it won't take much to pass the Lord's Supper or the offering plate. But that's okay. That's okay. We're going to stand on God's Word. 
Now the Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. That's exactly what's going on, folks. Don't doubt it for a second. And we are in spiritual warfare, and we'd better be equipped. And when I say equipped, we need to know what God's Word says. We need to understand that Satan is a liar. He's the father of lies, that he can be transformed in an angel of light. And don't you believe it when they say love is love. That's a lie. That's a lie. Anyway, chapter 5 is all about the welfare of the church and church discipline. 1 Timothy chapter 6 is a call to godliness and how with godliness there's great contentment. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3, If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud knowing nothing but doting about questions and strife of words where cometh envy and strife and railings and evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. Hey, I've had preachers tell me that one way of knowing that God is blessing you is if your coffers are full and your church is full. That's not the case, folks. That's not the case. Matter of fact, I think it's going to be right the opposite as things get more and more difficult. That gain is godliness. You can tell God is blessing you by how rich you are, not what God's Word says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can't carry nothing out. You know, Proverbs 23.5 says that riches takes wings and flies away. And having food and raiment, raiment let us be therewith content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil. There's that verse. That doesn't say that money is the root of all evil, but that the love of money is the root of all evil. It has to do with your priority. I've known some rich people, not nearly enough, but I've known some rich people that are the sweetest, kindest, most godly individuals you ever want to meet, and God has blessed them, and they use their funds, their money for His glory, and God bless them. But it's because they don't love money. They love God, and they understand that the trap that money can get you into and the direction that if that's what you live for, if that's why you eat and breathe and you function is because you want to get money, money, money. God's Word says you're pretty well headed for destruction. For the love of money is the root of all evil. 
which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many, many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things. You want to know what you're, you're to follow after? Follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, peace, meekness. Pretty much the opposite of what the world demands today, isn't it? Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. Whereunto thou art also called and hath professed, professed a good profession before many witnesses. Verse 20. Oh, Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. And I would say the same to St. Louis Bible Fellowship, that we are to keep, the word keep there has to do with guard, that which is committed to your trust. What has been committed to our trust is that mystery. It's that secret that was hid in God from before the foundation of the world. It's that gospel of the grace of God. That is that special revelation that was given to the Apostle Paul as an explanation of what was taking place and who we are in Christ. We're to guard that. We're to protect that because the world is going to come along and try to snatch that away, try to deceive you, try to change you from what you believe in order to believe what the world is going to throw at you. Oh, Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings in oppositions of science falsely so-called. It's so important that we do that, that in 2 Timothy, he starts again. In the very first, first, very first verse, reminding Timothy to guard that precious deposit. He ends the first letter Guard that precious deposit. He starts the second letter. Guard that precious deposit. You know why? Because it's important that we stand on the truth of God's word. Because the world, the enemy, is going to come against us and it is going to deny the truth of God's word. And according to 1 Timothy, the world's going to come along and it's going to, in the last days, forbid marrying forbid eating of meats. We don't have time to get into that this morning, but folks, uh, we're heading that direction. As just a few months ago, uh, Tim showed some things, some slides, where uh, there are people that are saying that what's causing global warming is because we eat meat, and what's causing the destruction of the world is because people eat meat. And there are those that are saying, what we need to do is quit eating meat and start eating stuff that they're growing in special forms. And, and it's just, it's a ridiculous thing. If we're going to save this planet, that's what we have to do. God's Word said that's coming. It's coming. Forbidding to marry is because the institution of marriage is getting less and less and less important. The institution of marriage, why it is more It's considered more of an obstacle than it is a sacred institution that a man and woman enter into and live out their lives together. We need 
kind of solve the problem if we just did away with marriage. We just did away with husband of one wife. We just did away with that. Why wouldn't it? Wouldn't things be a lot simpler? Nah. No, not at all. But I'm here to tell you that's what's coming. We need to be prepared to combat that. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your promise to us. We thank you for the salvation we have in Christ, the life eternal that's ours. Father, I just pray this morning that you'll give us the wisdom, the insight, the courage to take a stand for you and for what your word teaches us. Father, I pray that you'll help us rightly divide it, understand it, apply it to our daily lives. Father, you'll help us to have the courage to stand for what your word says, regardless of the direction that the world is going. Father, help us to be loving, help us to be kind, help us to be merciful, help us to be meek, but Father, help us to take a stand the truths of your word in a godly fashion. Now, Father, I pray this morning, if there's anyone here today who has not by faith trusted Christ, that they will not leave this building today without by faith trusting you, believing that Christ died for their sins, was buried and rose again, understanding that that is the good news that saves. That he did that on their behalf so that by them believing they can be made new creations by him. It's his work on Calvary's cross and the work that follows. Fathers, you mold and shape. We thank you for that perfect salvation. And Father, dismiss us today. May you be glorified. We pray all these things in Christ's holy and most precious name. Amen.